Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of The New Abnormal. And we thank you so much for being here. Today we have an extra special guest with Keith Boykin, the author of Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America. Welcome to The New Abnormal, Keith. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're so happy to have you. So talk to me about this book. The book is called Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America. And the title is a reflection of the fact that we are literally living in a point where we are people are in a race against time to stop the changing of America, to stop the blackening and browning of America in, in particular. It's a book that is a reflection of where we are as a country right now and how divided we have been as a country, especially for the past five years. And it starts in 2020, on the very first second of 2020. I find myself in a former women's prison in Mexico City. And that was sort of the unexpected beginning point for the uh, for the story that I tell in the book. And I didn't know exactly how to interpret that at the time, but uh, in hindsight, it appeared to have been an omen that warned me that I would soon find myself in jail. And by the middle of 2020, a few days after George Floyd was murdered, I was covering a protest in New York City and found myself locked up, arrested by the NYPD and placed in jail for six hours simply for doing my job covering a protest. Uh, And it was, I think, another reflection of just how divided our country is, how racially suspect basic requests for social justice have become in our country and the need for us to have some sort of process of atonement, of healing, uh, in order for our country to move forward. Wow. Jail is... One thing, jail in New York. I mean, can you explain to us what happened? Because I think that's really important. And and it is a really big problem in New York that people don't talk about as much. Yeah, well, in this particular case, I had been living in Texas for three months with my mom during the COVID pandemic shutdown. A few days before the official shutdown, my stepdad passed away. And I was with my mom when this happened. And... I expected I would stay for the funeral services um, and then try to help to help her sort some things out and move back. But I didn't have a chance to go back because I didn't want to leave my mom there by herself as a widow in the midst of this pandemic where she couldn't go anywhere or do anything. So I stayed in in Texas with her. Uh, And I didn't get back to New York until the day after Memorial Day, which was the day after George Floyd was killed. And I heard a protest outside my window um, in my apartment in Harlem. And I went outside to find, what, find out what was going on. And I saw Black Lives Matter activists marching through the streets of New York City. And I grabbed my, uh, my bicycle, went back to my apartment, grabbed my bicycle, and um, went out and started following the, the march route, seeing where they were going all throughout the city. I ended up on the West Side Highway, which is one of the major thoroughfares in New York. And took over the highway, marching down the street, 
marching down right. the highway. And yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I saw the police coming, and I was concerned what was going to happen next. So I stood on the side of the road between the police and the protesters to document it. And the police came and they arrested me and didn't give me a chance to explain. I said I was with the press. They said it doesn't matter. We're going to jail anyway. Uh, and they locked me up in a hot police van for about an hour, took me to a police bus, and then took me to jail. Uh, locked me up with 35 other inmates who were uh, also incarcerated for the, um, mostly, I think, also incarcerated for the protest that they were at that day. Um, and, it, and it was a time where I was really concerned about COVID and um, yeah. And I'm here in this crowded jail cell with 3,000 people. You know? What did you learn writing this book? It does seem, the central premise of it does seem absolutely true. And I'm shocked that we don't talk about it more, this idea, because we see that the right has got, has lost its mind. And yeah. th- right, this is the really the only explanation. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, I think lost its mind might be a generalization, but I think it's clear that people have become obsessed with with fighting against things that seemed basic and acceptable just a few years ago. We can't agree on anything. We can't agree on whether to wear a mask or not. We can't agree on whether to be vaccinated or not. We can't agree on whether the president of the United States won the election or not, even though it was certified most as the safest election in, in history by the previous administration. We can't agree on basic facts. We can't agree on science. How do you have a society that is this divided when one group of people, this right-wing faction, refuses to accept the, not only the, the truth of the present, but the possibility of the future. And that's the dangerous point that we find ourselves in right now. And my argument in the book is that this is all motivated by race. That people are afraid of, of race. They're afraid of the fact that we had a black president for eight years, the fact that we have a black woman vice president, the fact that we had a woman who won more votes than the white man who became president in the previous uh, presidency. We have marriage equality in all 50 states. We have a Latino population, which is expanding to the point where they will now be the majority in at least three to five states in the next three decades. We have an, an Asian-American population, which is growing more rapidly than any other population in the, in the country. Uh, we also have a country where people don't know how to process all these things. They don't know how to process the fact that immigrants are coming from the southern border and they are treating them differently from immigrants who are coming in from the northern border. All of this is about a fear of race, a fear of a changing America, the loss of, of white supremacy and white privilege. What really surprised you when you were working on this? I don't know that I was surprised by anything. That's the sad part. I should have been surprised, but there's not a lot that is surprising to me, except for the fact that so many people are unwilling to believe this. I've worked for CNN and I've been on air for the past several years sort of talking about some of these issues. And I've gotten a lot of pushback from people. Whenever I talk about race, people deny that race has any, any impact at all on anything that's going on in our country. That, I, I suppose that there's something that surprises me. I, I'm surprised that that argument still carries weight in 2021 after we've seen everything that the Trump administration put us through and after everything that happened since and 74 million people voted for him. It, uh, it's surprising to me, I suppose, that people still don't, still don't believe that race is, is, a, is a fundamental core value or element of what's going on and the division in our country. Yeah, why do you think that is? Is it just because they're in denial? Well, I think some people are invested, particularly in the right. I think some people are invested in pretending that that is not the case. That can't possibly be that way. So they want to sweep under the rug all those 
the racial history of our country and, and the, the racial animosity that exists today, and they want to uh, create some sort of race-neutral explanation for what's going on. Uh, but I've also seen it on the left as well, and I think there's a tendency sometimes in the left, from a totally different perspective, to assume that we can just appeal to white middle America with economic arguments, white middle America that doesn't vote for, for Democrats in particular, with economic arguments, and that somehow that's going to uh, overcome the, the racial bias and bigotry that exists in, in the country. And I think that's a myth as well. That there's no evidence of that. And no, ever since Lyndon Johnson, Democrat president, signed um, the Civil Rights Act in 1964, no Democratic candidate for president has won the white vote. Not one. Yeah. It seems so obvious, but somehow they fight against it. So it's really a interesting and very problematic situation. I think that there's actually really interesting evidence that has come out in this recent week is we're now starting to see elected officials like Matt Gates start talking about white replacement theory because they think it's going to motivate votes. What have you been seeing there? Well, yeah, I'm mean, using Tucker Carlson and Matt Gates and others. I mean, I think that's what motivated Donald Trump. You just sort of look at the evolution of the Republican Party from the party of Lincoln from the 1860s to the party of Barry Goldwater, who voted against the Civil Rights Act in 1964, to the party of Reagan, who led this sort of attack on what he called welfare queens, um, all the way to the party of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has this sordid racial history. His first introduction to politics is with the Central Park Five, who were all exonerated. He's never apologized for that. Then you move into the Obama administration, it becomes political again. Uh, actually, there's another period before that when he ran on the Reform Party ticket, uh, tried to run on the Reform Party ticket in 2000, didn't, didn't make it. But then we move into the Obama administration in the 2011, and he begins this five-and-a-half-year campaign about Obama's birth certificate. And then you move to 2014, and the Ebola crisis hits, and, uh, and here Trump is leading the effort to not only uh, shut down all flights from West Africa, but to to remove Obama from president because of a, of a pandemic that didn't have anywhere near as devastating an impact as right. the coronavirus pandemic. And didn't even get here. And didn't really, it barely even got here, only a handful of cases here. And then you move into his campaign itself. And then what's the first thing he does with his campaign? He talks about Mexico. When Mexico sends his people, they're rapists, they're drug dealers, they're not sending their best. Then he, after that, he goes on to attack Muslims and calls for a complete and total shutdown of Muslims, all Muslims entering the country, more than a billion people across the planet. He's banning them from it. He wants to ban them from entering the country. So all of this is about protecting whiteness, protecting white people from a changing and darkening America. And the language is so obviously clear that it's, it's, it's a sad statement of, affa of affairs that people aren't willing to admit it. Just look at the people who were there at the insurrection January 6th. The overwhelming majority of them were white men. Yeah. So interesting. Where do you get to with this? Like, what is your take on how we can start to heal? That's a great word, heal. I like that word. I have sort of a proposal for how do we move forward. You know, the book is divided in three parts. The first part is about 2020. The second part is about how we got to 2020. And third part is about how do we move forward from 2020 and how do we heal? I have three parts to that. One is atonement, two is accountability, and the third is equality. Atonement simply means that 
white America has the responsibility to atone for the past, to acknowledge what happened in the past and to atone for it so we can move forward. And it's important to understand that white America will never be safe until black and brown America feel safe. The reason why we need why the country feels the need to spend so much money on law enforcement and policing, why we have to lock so many people up, why people have to buy so many guns, is because white Americans, not all, but many of them don't feel safe in this country because of this, the fact that there's so many black and brown people in this country. But in rather rather than investing in making the lives of black and brown people more equitable and and more and to create a system of more social justice, they'd rather invest in protecting themselves from, from us. Um, so atonement is a critical first step. The second step is accountability. And here is a responsibility for African-Americans that we have to do a better job of holding our leaders accountable, whether they're Democrat or Republican. You know, I worked in the Clinton administration. I went to law school with President Barack Obama before he was president, obviously, but I went to law school with, with Obama. I've seen how difficult it is for the, those of us who are on the left to even criticize people who are supposedly representing our interests, because sometimes we're accused of being disloyal if we do so. And the reality, especially for African-Americans, is that if we don't hold those leaders accountable, we won't get anything out of them. Black, black voters are the most loyal constituency of the Democratic Party. And yet right now we have three pieces of legislation, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act sitting in Congress that we can't get through with a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic president. So we have to push more for our, our issues of concern as black voters so that we can get those issues on the table. And then thirdly, I talk about equality, that the last step is equality, that instead of just having equal opportunities, we have to have equal outcomes. That has to be the goal for our society. So instead of saying, we're going to now say that everybody's equal after 200 years of discrimination and slavery and segregation, we're going to ignore all that and say we're all equal by fiat, we have to actually take steps to make that equality real. We have to make the goal that until we have we eliminate these persistent racial disparities in society, we're never really equal. We're just pretending to be so. So that has to be the new way we think about um, civil rights and, and racial justice. So that's really important and interesting. Just tell me, how would you, like as a listener here, can you give us, I know this is like the worst question, but it's it, people want to know, a concrete thing they could do. Yeah, I can think of a few things they could do. One is to learn more about race and racial justice issues, uh, to read deeply, not just my book, but read other books, read books like Ibram X. Kendi's books, who wrote, for example, Stamp for the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, or White Rage by Carol Anderson. There's a lot of literature out there that deals with race and racism in America and tells a history that we don't often discuss. So that's the first step, just become more knowledgeable and study these issues. Second, be aware of our implicit biases. A lot of times we don't even acknowledge that we have biases. And the reality is that we all do. We live in a racist, sexist, misogynist, classist, homophobic, heterosexist, transphobic society with all these different biases that we're absorbing every day. And we don't even bother oftentimes to interrogate what are the decisions we're making? Why are, why are we making these decisions? Why are we often surrounded by people who look like us, even though we come from or support progressive causes? And people who don't challenge us ideologically or philosophically or challenges in terms of, of representation. So the second really important part is just to be aware of our biases. And the third step is to do something to affirmatively 
not just acknowledge, but to address those biases, to take steps once we are aware of what we're doing, once we're aware of, our, of, our, of how we got there and aware of our history, take steps in, in our own community in whatever way, in our, in our uh, places of worship, in our businesses, in our families, to address those biases that linger. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Keith. This was so great. Thank you both. I appreciate the time and talking to you. It's really a wonderful conversation. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.